I received a phone call on the first Monday in November one year. Now, why do I remember this? Because the following day was the first Tuesday, and in Australia at least, that means Melbourne Cup Day. If you're not from Australia, the Melbourne Cup is a horse race. Many people take the day off work. There are lunches and events across the country in celebration of it, and musicians are often booked as a result. It's a big piss up. An agent called asking if I was available to fill in for a show on the morrow. The guitarist who had been booked had, wait for it, broken his hand playing tennis that afternoon. You can listen to my other podcasts for the reference there. They needed someone that could just turn up and wing it with no rehearsal and no charts. I'd come highly recommended. That was really good to hear. At this stage, I was doing a lot of fill-ins for many different acts. I think I was working regularly for between 16 and 17 different singers, bands, duos, concept shows and whatever. And most of it was because I'd filled in at the last minute to cover for someone. Most of them had been quite appreciative and some had been very impressed. I was called on by most of them when they were stuck. And I found myself regularly playing seven or eight gigs a week for a while as a result. The show that needed a guitarist the following day was a 50s rock and roll show. I wasn't booked for that gig that day and I was able to move the two private students that I did have uh, scheduled for the afternoon onto the Wednesday, so it was no biggie. I agreed I'd do it. The most memorable thing about the actual gig was four guys in pink suits from the 50s. It was quite the look. The rest of it was pretty smooth sailing. At the end, one of the singers approached me asking if I might be available to fill in for his Elvis show and their upcoming tour as the guitarist who had broken his hand playing tennis was scheduled to travel with that show. I asked him to check back with me later that night, once I was home and had my diary in hand. A few hours later we talked on the phone, and I confirmed that I'd be able to make some adjustments to my schedule to take the original guitarist's place. I normally won't cancel gigs, in fact I've only ever cancelled a couple, um, one because I had COVID, another time because I was very sick and actually coughing up blood. So it's very rare for me to do this, but um, for this instance, I actually knew the venue operator personally for the gigs I had booked, and I, I checked with them first and said, would I be able to just swap these dates? And I swapped them with someone else that played there regularly anyway, so it was all good. Anyway, he said he'd send me some CDs to learn the show, and he also told me just to wear black on stage. He had vests for the band to wear, which he'd give us just before we took to the stage uh, for the night. I'd never actually listened to Elvis prior to this, and to be honest, I was very impressed. I was very impressed by the band and the recording engineers with the technology available for the 50s tunes. It sounded incredible. That's what really blew me away. Though Elvis sounded pretty good too. Mr. Elvis contacted me again. The bass player had to pull out. Could I recommend anyone? I called a mate of mine who played guitar and bass at a very high level. He was able to cover the next two weeks at least. I put him in touch with Mr. Elvis and then called me to say he'd be joining the show for a few weeks. It was then suggested we travel together and I'd be compensated for travel expenses. I was happy to travel with a friend, 
and we would also room together. That was a big relief. Rooming with some people that you don't know on a tour is not a thing of joy. The first show was a six hour drive south of where we lived. We set off on our journey and upon arriving at our destination, we realized that the venue information we'd been given was incorrect. We called the others several times, but no luck in getting them to answer their phones. So we drove around the town looking for a poster advertising the show. We fortunately stumbled across one and headed off to that club once we worked out where it was. We were actually the first ones there. Mr. Bass and I got our gear out, set up and waited. And we waited for quite some time as it turned out. The others eventually arrived and we set up the PA and lights. Had a quick sound check and had the obligatory complaint from the old lady playing the pokies that she couldn't hear the machine as we were too loud. I also had my first encounter with the drummer that we shall refer to as Boy Wonder from here on, here on in, and the parent accompanying him. We'll come back to them a little later, but I shall preface this by saying it was a case of helicopter parenting in the extreme. We wandered off to our hotel rooms, and I was so glad to be rooming with Mr. Bass. As a passionate non-smoker, I dreaded the thought of being with someone who insisted on smoking in my room. About an hour before the show was due to start, we wandered over to the club, where we were presented with what I can describe as being razzle-dazzle vests. They were bright red and very sparkly. I think the razzle-dazzle description comes from the Wiggles. And then there was Mr. Elvis, strutting about in white undies with a bathrobe suggestively draped open. An image of a strutting peacock came to my mind. The band dressing room was to the left of the stage, his was to the right. He gave us some instructions about not going out again, letting the excitement build in the audience, being somewhat aloof to build this air of mystique with the musicians and the, uh, and the audience, told us not to wear the vests anywhere but on stage, and that he'd also be listening very carefully to us and docking us for any bum notes we played. That last one is straight out of the James Brown playbook, but I don't think Mr. Elvis had the year to actually discern any bad notes we did play. He then left us, and we joked around backstage for a while until the crew signaled for us that it was time to go on. We started playing the intro to Viva Las Vegas over and over. The curtains drew back, the lights came up slowly, and suddenly was there. Mr. Elvis was dressed like Elvis Presley himself from the 68 comeback special. The whole leather outfit. And he was pumping and thrusting his hips like no tomorrow. As someone who is afflicted by the dreadful condition of giggleitis, yes, it is a self-coined medical condition, meaning that I get the giggles at the worst possible time, I was struggling not to lose it. My first thoughts upon seeing this was that he had, had or was a stripper. And later I was find out that I was actually correct. A few months down the track, I was rooming with Mr. Elvis on a tour and he told me he had been a stripper. But he felt he was getting too old, so he became an Elvis impersonator instead. I can see the logical career progression in that. The show itself was okay. I think Mr. Bass and I did fairly well, or very well in fact, with no rehearsal. We both made mistakes, but we covered them well. Though we were both young. We both had a lot of professional experience by then, knew our instruments very well, and we had good ears. 
Being able to respond to situations musically as they occur is essential to working regularly as a musician. We played the two sets, the second featuring a costume change into the Elvis jumpsuit of the Vegas era, complete with footy socks stuffed down the front for extra impact. That was a great look. And then we walked off, and as we did so, Mr. Elvis walked behind the stage curtain, put on another voice for himself, and called for an encore. I've not seen anyone call their own encore before, or since for that matter. At the end of the night, Mr. Elvis made a note of buying everyone pizza, and his offsider was encouraging all of us to give him a round of applause for being so generous and such an amazing guy and entertainer. This was in fact the first and last generous act displayed by him. And as the show went on and future, future tours occurred, I found that uh, the offsider was often bad-mouthing Mr. Elvis to everyone he could. We were also introduced to one of the most egotistical, hubristic and hilarious notions I have ever encountered. There is no pleasant way to describe this, so sorry if it offends, but I was informed an extra room was booked by the band, or sorry, for the band each night, or the crew, in case one of us got lucky with someone. I've played a lot of gigs, and such a thing is incredibly rare. I know of one such instance in my whole time playing gigs involving a drummer in a show where we were playing in a mining town in the outback of Queensland. And, well, apart from that incident, there was something that occurred in Cooma on this tour, but we'll talk about more of that later. I worked for this guy, that is Mr. Elvis, for about six months. And after a few weeks, and I feeling more comfortable with my position there, I suggested I'd be happy to take some extra money each night instead of contributing to that extra room. I assured him I'd not be using the room, so he was I was happy to forgo the whole thing and get an extra $30 or $40 each night. My first thought with this whole stupid thing was, does he think we are the Rolling Stones or Kiss? Mr. Bass and I grabbed a drink and went back to our room to watch TV and left the others to do whatever they were up to. Most of it seemed to involve sitting around. That's one of the, hate, that's one of the things I hate about touring. My brain is very active, and so I had several thoughts often going on at once that I wanted to be doing something. I choose to sit down because I need to, that's my business, but hanging around waiting for people when I can't do anything, that frustrates me no end. The next, the next few gigs were not particularly memorable, other than the growing presence of the helicopter parent at the soundcheck. The young drummer was endorsed by a very large musical company, and he had a lot of gear with him. Way more than what was needed for these shows. I have no issue with people owning a lot of gear, or taking it to shows when needed. I've played in some shows where I've had six or seven guitars with me, different tunings, different sounds, tones, a backup if a string breaks, etc. And I have a few pedal boards. I get some questions and criticisms, a bit of derision, but I know why I have the gear. And I also know how to use it, that's another important thing. If others don't understand why I have it, well that's okay. They also don't know what else I might use it for, and what I've done in the past where I have required it. The electronic drum pad that triggered a laughing sample sound really wasn't required for the Elvis show. And it really didn't need to be used during the Love Me Tender uh, segment of the show because the young guy thought it would be funny. 
When someone is paying you to work for them in such a show, you have to do what is asked and respect the occasion. Also respect the audience. They've paid money to be there. Most of, if not all of these shows were uh, a ticketed show where they got a meal, drinks, and then the Elvis show all included. It wasn't cheap. Now, the first altercation with drummer, his dad, and Mr. Elvis came about five or six nights in when the helicopter parents suggested that moving the drum pit forward making his son a feature of the show would be a good thing. Mr. Elvis quickly dismissed it, but the parent was not happy. And none of the other musicians would feature or even acknowledge during the night. So why should his son be shown such treatment? I personally didn't care. I don't think my friend on bass did either. But it can get some people offside with that sort of thing. The next night we arrived at the club to find that the drum drum kit had been set up before any of us had even gotten there. And it was maybe two or three metres ahead of where the other musicians would normally stand. The kit was moved back. The stage really wasn't big enough for him to be put that far forward anyway. And then the following night, the big fight went down. We did a sound check. And during that time, we heard the helicopter parent constantly saying that the drums needed to be louder. They were mic'd with a standard club setup, kick, snare, and two overheads. Plenty of sound support for the show we were playing in, and he was a loud player anyway. And the father suggested a few more mics for the kid, and that they even had extra mics they'd brought along just in case they were required. That was quickly shut down and we went off to our rooms or a restaurant to eat. We'd been told to be backstage about 30 minutes before the opening number. So Mr. Bass and I walked off and it was about actually 40 minutes before we were due to start when we came back. And we walked in to find that the father had put 12 mics on the kit, unplugging other instruments in the desk to get the extra channels he needed to mic his son's instrument. To say this did not go down well with Mr. Elvis, the sound guy, or the roadies is an understatement. Screaming and shouting erupted, with the father threatening to pack up the kit and take his son home. I really didn't want to get involved. It was not my show, not my concern in many ways. But then the father tried to drag me into it by saying I was going to support his son Um, and the need for extra mics because I knew more about sound than the sound guy. That may have been the case, but this was not my fight. I tried to talk calmly and rationally about the whole thing, explaining that reputations are crucial and walking out now minutes before a show could really affect his son's future work opportunities. I managed to calm him down and we very quickly repatched the instruments into the desk. We had to deal with some howling feedback during the first few songs but we got through the show in the end. The following day was a break uh, in the tour schedule, so we went our own way. Mr. Bass and I drove to my aunt and uncle's place for the day. We stayed there overnight. That was good, very good to see them. The following day we arrived at the club for uh, that night's show and lo and behold, we had a new drummer. He'd done the show before and so slotted in with no issues. In fact, he was better than the young guy who had left us. 
I'll talk more about both drummers in a future episode or episodes. As the departed drummer reappeared in another show I played in sometime after this, and his replacement ended up working with me on a number of long tours, and he's an interesting specimen of humanity, to say the least. So, the extra room incident I had alluded to earlier, well, Kuma was interesting, and scary. The show had sold out for that night at the club, with the allocated number of tickets, which were all seated, had got going very quickly. They then decided to open up another area in the club and make it general standing room admission for much of the area, so they sold an extra 800 tickets that night. It was crazy. There was so much energy in the room. The strutting peacock well and truly let himself be seen, sort of sauntering about backstage in his undies and robe, and teasing the audience with a glimpse of his self-styled sex god appearance, before of course he transformed into being Elvis. The band went off that night. The responsiveness of the audience makes a huge difference to the musicians. At the end of the night, well, we did the two sets. Mr. Elvis called for his own encore yet again. We did that and we walked backstage, ready to lose the razzle dazzle jackets, put our instruments back in their cases, and then Mr. Bass and I would go back to our hotel room and watch sport or a movie. We found a woman backstage in our change room, talking to the crew, suggesting we all, that is musicians, Mr. Elvis, sound and lighting crew, go back to her place for a party. I'm going to keep this very clean. She was far more suggestive than that, but you don't need to hear it. I really don't need to repeat it either. Mr. Bass and I left ASAP. He was much the same uh, in mindset as I was, and we didn't really want to be around that sort of thing. Now, I actually ended up working for this guy, that is Mr. Elvis, for around six months. He always tried to find ways to pay less than promised. I never accepted that. He had a string of revolving musicians as he fell out with one after another. The same thing was to actually happen with the crew. My buddy on bass did maybe a month and then he left, so I had to room with various others. The drummer who was the chain smoker, first class idiot, and narcissist was the final straw for me. I've been out of the touring show circus for a while now, and I'm not sure that such tours as this even exist anymore. I can't imagine playing a club or a tribute show on a Monday night, packing up, going to another town somewhere in New South Wales, Queensland or Victoria and playing on a Tuesday night and then doing the same thing Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Maybe around the Christmas period. Anyway, it was an interesting time to be a musician and I could find myself playing for Elvis one night in an 80s tribute show the next, maybe doing a few duo gigs, playing typical rock pub covers then maybe picking up some country gigs to fill in for someone or doing some session work for ads or soundtracks. Times have really changed over the last 10 to 15 years. And with that, we also must think that musicians have to change as well. One of the things that has kept me going as a musician is the willingness to have a go at anything. I've been open to accepting a lot of gigs outside of my comfort zone and that's helped me develop new skills, which has helped me develop different income streams 
and more opportunities as they've arisen. And if you're thinking about making a career out of music, I'd encourage you to do the same. Yes, love whatever it is that you do. You know, I love jazz. I love fingerstyle guitar. I love improvisation. I love instrumental rock guitar. I get to do little snippets of those things here and there. Most of the time, I'm playing music for other people and doing what the general populace wants to hear. Now, that works for me. It may not work for you. There's no judgment from me, and there shouldn't be judgment from anyone else in this. I'm privileged in that I get to work as a full-time musician. Not everyone does that. If you want to make a career, as I said, be open to doing anything that you can. I'd like to thank the uh, inimitable Miss B for encouraging me to share these stories. There's quite a few more to come. And I'm still Scotty B, and you've been listening to Memoirs of a Musician. If you've enjoyed this podcast, perhaps you'd like to support my Patreon site for as little as $3 a month, or you could buy me a coffee. There'll be a link in the text that describes this podcast episode. Thanks very much for listening.